Good morning, friends. As we continue our journey through the Bible, we are going to jump ahead a little bit, but also look back a little bit. And I invite this morning to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12. John's Gospel, chapter 12, is well, where we will begin, <clears throat> beginning at verse 12. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. They shouted, Hosanna! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing on the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. After he was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The crowd who had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were testifying about him. That's why the crowd came out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign that he had done. Therefore, the Pharisees said to each other, See, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world is following him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There were two processions that day in Jerusalem. There have always been two ways. At one end of the city was Jesus, riding on a donkey, with peasants waving palm branches and laying their clothes at his feet. At the other end of the city was Pilate, the Roman emissary, entering on a white steed, being welcomed by soldiers, symbolizing strength, military power, control, intimidation, that entrance might remind us of some of the pictures we see on television from time to time in certain parts of the world where they hold military parades, where all the army is marched out in front of the imperial leader and they march by and the imperial leader salutes. It's a picture of power, of might makes right. It's a system that believes that its leader, Caesar, is the Son of God. And that the way to peace is through power, control, and violence. It is what has been referred to by theologians as the domination system. A system of political oppression. Marked by the fact that many are ruled by an elite few... The masses are economically exploited by the elite few, and all of it is religiously legitimized. The Romans believed that the king, the Caesar, ruled by divine right, 
that the social order was reflecting the will of God and that the king, Caesar himself, was the son of God. There have always been two ways. At the other end of town is Jesus on the colt, the young donkey, with peasants like ourselves, ordinary people, people tired and broken from living under the domination system. They long to be free. They long for deliverance. They want a savior. And when, when one looks carefully at the way in which Jesus sets up his entry into the city, one can't help but see it as a kind of political protest. You see, Jesus is leaning heavily into the symbolism from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Hear these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The rest of this Zechariah passage tells us what kind of king he will be. Quote, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. This humble king riding on a donkey will banish war from the land, will banish chariots, will banish war horses, will banish bows. He will bring peace. He will be the prince or the king of peace. Sounds a little bit like a protest, doesn't it? You see, Jesus' procession is in deliberate contradiction to what is happening on the other side of the city. Pilate represents power and glory and violence. Jesus' procession is an alternative vision. The kingdom of God. And these competing visions are important to hold in our minds because they will play out for the rest of the week of Jesus' life. The kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom of power, the kingdom of domination, and the kingdom of God. You see, friends, there has always been two ways. Now, I know that some of us are a little desperate to keep Christianity out of politics, aren't we? I mean, cultured people know there's two things you don't talk about at dinner, religion and politics. But the sad truth is that religion and Christianity have been in politics for a long time especially when it served our own purposes. You know, don't you, that wars have been waged in the name of Christianity. You know that people have been killed and oppressed in Christ's name. You know that slavery, anti-Semitism, and other terrible atrocities have been sanctioned by famous Christian religious leaders that we look up to today. Friends, let's not try to avoid that. Let's not stick our heads in the sand. 
Let's not try to avoid the facts, even though they may bring us great grief and sorrow. Because in order to change the future, I believe we must deal with our past. We must know where we've come from. We must see the mistakes that we have made. Christianity has historically been connected to many different political movements, and often it's been on the wrong side of things. There have always been two ways. Nevertheless, more recently, many in the church have tried to at least disconnect Jesus from politics, right? Can't we do that, Brad? Well, that's not entirely true. We sometimes bring Jesus into a few key moral issues we're concerned about, but mostly we try to keep him out of this messiness, not unlike we try to keep Jesus out of the messiness of embodied life. You've heard me talk about this before. We, try, we sort of treat Jesus sometimes like he's not quite human, he floats just a few inches above the ground so he doesn't get himself in that beautiful white seamless garment he's supposedly well dirty with any of the filth of life. We want our Jesus to be clean. We say, Jesus, you can stay in touch with the realm of the spiritual. Thank you very much. That's where we like to keep you. But friends, if we try and see Jesus as some, somehow outside of real life, we have to ignore massive amounts of Scripture, don't we? And if we want to tell ourselves that God doesn't care about real life, well, you might as well get a pair of scissors and start cutting. You know, Thomas Jefferson did that, right? Thomas Jefferson got out his scissors and made his own Bible in the New Testament. You can buy it at Romans. Go check it out. They got a copy. I checked. Jefferson cut out all the spiritual parts. He didn't like that miracle stuff. Sometimes in the evangelical church, we've done a similar thing, although we keep all the spiritual stuff and want to cut out all the messy embodied life stuff. We want to keep all the stuff that has to do with spirit and healing and deliverance from sin and entrance into heaven. But if there's something I'm hoping that you're getting through this preaching series we're doing, the story, the arc, the narrative of Christian life from Genesis to Revelation, if there's something I hope you're getting is that God is deeply involved with and deeply concerned about real life. God is deeply involved with and deeply concerned about real life. Way too few amens in the room. <laughs> Friends, God is concerned about righteousness and widows and orphans. That is the poor and the destitute. Yahweh's concerned about holiness and biblical justice those unfairly oppressed and politically disadvantaged. You see, the Lord is concerned with worship and obedience, following his command to love our neighbor at least as well as we love ourselves. We've been seeing this, haven't we, throughout the Old Testament that we've been preaching on. So let me be really clear today. Jesus wasn't a politician. He wasn't running for office. 
And he certainly wasn't trying to take over the existing structure to initiate a Jewish nation state. People wanted him to do that, but he wasn't up to that. However, don't make any mistake, because what Jesus did and said was political. It was political because the implications of what he taught and how he lived challenged the political domination system of his day. And what was that system that he most opposed, that his life and teaching most challenged? It was that very thing, that imperial domination system seen so clearly that Palm Sunday when Pilate rode into town. There have always been two ways. Now we don't know the story, don't we? But, but maybe a little history will help us. By the time of Jesus, the Israelites have suffered massive defeats, haven't they? As a nation. They've been conquered, and their city has been burned, and their temple has been destroyed, and they've been taken into exile. Finally, 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 they are allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. The high priests now and the temple authorities, they serve in this situation as the rulers of the Jewish people, but they owe allegiance and tribute to the imperial overlords who let them return, who let them rebuild the temple. Are you with me? So in 164 BCE, the Jewish people gained their independence from this empire, and for about 100 years they ruled themselves until the Romans in 63 BCE. And when the Romans roll into town, they abolish the Jewish monarchy, but they decide to rule locally through the high priests and the temple. This was always the Roman way. The Romans would rule through the local people, especially wealthy families. And these puppet rulers of Rome had two jobs, keep the order in the people and pay tribute to Rome. Now, due to many power struggles between the wealthy Jewish families, Rome appointed Herod, who was a convert to Judaism. This became Herod the Great. Now, many of you will know that Herod the Great was strategic and ruthless. He executed any wealthy Jewish families who might challenge him, and he took their wealth. He severely limited the power of the high priests, High priests were supposed to serve for life, but during Herod's 33 uh, years as king, Herod appointed and got rid of seven different high priests. I don't like you. You're out. Next one. Herod ruled from Jerusalem, the holy city, Zion, where he rebuilt the temple to be gorgeous. (laughs) It was so beautiful, the palace that he built, that later it became the home of the Roman governors. And Herod didn't stop there. He had all sorts of projects all over, outside of Jerusalem. And all of this cost money. How did he pay for it? Well, you know, don't you? Taxation on the peasants. Extortion of the wealthy. And the seizing of agricultural lands. He was not Herod the Great to the Jews. He was Herod the Monstrous. 
to the Jews. In fact, there were so many numerous revolts of the Jewish people against Herod that Rome often had to come in and quell the uprisings. It got so bad that when Herod finally died, Rome divided the land into three segments and put governors over each one. So by 6 BCE, Rome decides to rule through governors. However, they don't give up their overall kind of uh, model. So they place the power in the local hands of the temple and its authorities. You, you follow me, right? Rome's in charge, but the local power now is in the hands of the high priests and the temple. Which means now the temple is not only a religious symbol for the Jews, but also an economic and political institution of Rome. Oh, I feel like we're watching like some show on Netflix. Are you with me? This is getting intriguing. This is getting interesting. The temple and the Jewish leaders, are you ready for it? Become the center of the local domination system. A new domination system emerges. And it's local. And it's in the hands of the temple and the high priests. And it's a, denom it's, a, it's a domination system because, again, it's ruled by an elite few. It's economically exploitive. And it's religiously legitimized. It's in the temple. The temple, the center of Jewish life and faith, is now controlled by the high priests who had been anointed by Herod and beholden to Rome. And these elites played with the rules in the law of Torah in order to obtain and hold on to wealth and power. Over time, a greater and greater chasm begins to develop between the religious haves and the religious have-nots. And wealth poured into Jerusalem. Through shady dealings of the authorities, through Roman taxation, and the numerous pilgrims who came to Jerusalem every year. There have always been two ways. You see, now these authorities, these high priests, these temple authorities, they not only helped shape and enforce the domination system, but they now benefit from it. They were intermediates between the local domination system and the imperial Roman domination system. And these rulers, these high priests, have a tricky job, don't they? Because they have to kind of keep a balance between not making Rome upset with them and also not turning their own people against them. By the way, if you hold that thought in your mind, much of what the Sanhedrin and the high priests do this week is going to make a lot more sense to you. They're betwixt and between. They're stuck, aren't they? They're trying to figure out how to do this. The local domination system is now located, friends, in the temple and legitimized by theology. That's a big one. That's a big one to chew on. There have always been two ways. So this is the Jerusalem that Jesus enters on Palm Sunday. This is the system that Jesus is protesting. You see, Jesus wasn't only protesting the Roman imperial domination system, but the religious domination system. 
And Jesus wasn't the only anti-temple voice. Most of the Jewish revolts before and after Jesus were against the temple and its Roman collaborators, or the temple and the high priests as emissaries of the Roman imperial domination system. Maybe we could see now a little better or a little more clearly why John the Baptist and Jesus were so dangerous to the Jewish authorities. Just one example. John the Baptist and Jesus both offer forgiveness outside of the temple. Wait a second. <laughs> this isn't good news for those in power. This isn't good news for those in control. Both John and Jesus are undermining their authority. The power and the legitimacy, not only of Rome, but of the temple and the Jewish leaders as well. Do you remember when Caiaphas says, isn't it better for one man to die than for everyone to be destroyed? Betwixt and between. You see, this, this protest, this movement against this anti-temple, it's, it's not just about religious rules and regulations, which we sometimes like to make it about. Friends, this is about power, control, self-interest, and money. <laughs> so while Jesus didn't run for office, his life and teachings were in direct opposition to the domination system of the day. The way of Jesus can't help but get one into political trouble. There have always been, how many? Two ways. So there it is. I hope, I hope, clear as a bell on this Palm Sunday, the two ways. The way of Jesus or the way of the domination system. A system ruled by the few, benefiting those at the top, economically exploitive and religiously legitimized. Peasants waving palm branches at the end of the city while Pilate rides in on his white steed in full regalia at the other. There's always been two ways, at least two ways. Two ways, and there always will be two ways. The way of Jesus or some other way. And what is Jesus' way, Brad? I'm glad you asked. What is the kingdom of God that Jesus is offering as an alternative kingdom to the domination system? Well, we hear it in Isaiah. I invite you to turn there, if you'd like, with me to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. Hear these words again with all of this history in your mind. A shoot will grow up from the stump, right, the deadness of Jesse. A branch will sprout from its roots. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. 
the calf and the young lion will feed together and a little child will lead them. This ruler. And make no mistake, by the way, that the readers and the listeners of this passage would have heard it with messianic expectations. This leader will side for those who suffer. This leader will get rid of the wicked and his way will be peace for mortal enemies will lie down side by side. This is the peaceable kingdom, the kingdom of God, what the world would look like if God were king and the other rulers weren't. Well, don't just take Isaiah's word for it. Let's look at Jesus' words. From Luke's gospel, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. Although, spoiler alert, we're going to hear Isaiah again. Luke 4, beginning at verse 16. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been raised. On the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue, as he normally did, and stood up to read. The synagogue system gave him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue assistant, and sat down. Every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him. He began to explain to him, to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. <laughs> Jesus' way, friends, is for the poor. It's for the release of prisoners. It's for healing of the afflicted, the liberation of the oppressed. Does this sound like the way of the domination system to you? Or does it sound like another way? There have always been two ways. The way of the domination system and the way of the kingdom God, of God most clearly revealed in the life and death of Jesus, his son. Here's our question. Which parade will you join? Which procession will you be a part of? Which way will you choose? Just like many of the Jews of Jesus' day, we praise and we wave our palm branches as he enters the city, but days later, many of these same people will call out for the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. Because you see, the domination system is tricky, isn't it? It's insidious and it's subtle. The domination system is a new version of the snake whispering in our ears that we can and should have it all. It promises safety and econ economically and otherwise, and it can even relig religiously legitimize its claims. There have always been two ways. The way of the domination system and the way of Jesus, the peaceable kingdom of God. The kingdom of God 
which again is what the world would look like if God were king and not the rulers of this world. Follow me, said Jesus to his disciples. Follow me, he says to us today. Follow me on the way. Follow me in the way. In fact, the early Christians were called the way. But friends, I want you to have informed consent on this Palm Sunday. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to know that that means following him to Jerusalem. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need to know that that means following him to his suffering. If you're going to follow Jesus today on this Palm Sunday, that means following him to the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian that we like to quote, who lost his life because he, he uh, resisted the Nazis. Bonhoeffer said in his book on discipleship that when Jesus bids a person to come and follow him, he bids them to come and die. Friends, there have always been two ways. Which way will we choose today? Let us pray. Heavenly God, this is a heavy word. It's heavy because it invites us to take a hard look at ourselves, the systems that we have become unknowingly, sometimes unconsciously caught up in, domination systems, or whatever we want to call it that is clearly not the peaceable kingdom of God. It's a hard word that asks us to look in that direction. And it's a hard word because when you call us to follow you in your way, even in this peaceable kingdom, paradoxically, it means we're to follow you to the cross. But Jesus, it's also a good word. Because you... <laughs> are the one who holds life. You are the one who promises something beyond the domination systems that we find ourselves caught up in. You are the one who empowers us and emboldens us through the power of the Spirit to not only live our own lives in different ways, but to make life different for all of your daughters and sons to live life differently. You are the one who says, again, paradoxically, that your burden is light and your way is easy. And it is a good word also because if we're doing it right, we don't do it by ourselves. We do it together as the body of Christ. So when that system's whispering in my ear, someone comes along the other side and helps me see the other way. Oh, dear God, there's always been two ways. May this Easter season, we choose the way of the peaceable kingdom of God. In your name, amen. I invite you to stand and to receive this benediction, friends. This is a hard road at times, isn't it? If someone told you this faith was going to be easy, tell them they were lying to you. But it's good, amen? It's powerful. 
It's life-giving. It's life-affirming. But we can't do it without him who empowers us, and we can't do it without each other. So receive this benediction. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine by the power at work within us. To him be praise and glory in Christ Jesus in the church throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen.